Most importantly, our time in God's Word this last year, going through Hebrews 11, is coming to a close today. This is the last message I'm preaching from the Running with the Giants series. Uh, I've heard so many reports from people on how God has used this person or that person in the Old Testament to minister to them. And, uh, you know, throughout the week, God has really spoken to me about faith and taught me about faith. And I said last week, I can't just like end it. Like we can't just go, okay, last sermon on Nehemiah and then off we go on to the next thing. It's taken two weeks to kind of summarize everything we've learned together, right? Um, So last week we talked about principles of faith that we learned throughout the year. This week we're going to talk about the story of faith that God wrote throughout the whole Old Testament. My hope is that when we're done today, you can see how all of these stories we covered the last year are chained together, strung together by God to show how his plan has been unfolding from the very beginning. Um, You might feel like you live in a random, unpredictable, chaotic, senseless, wicked, pointless, futile world, and you'd be wrong. You'd be wrong. Because God has a plan to save us, to redeem us, to change the whole world. And that plan unfolded throughout the Old Testament. So what we're going to do is we're going to, (laughs) in one sermon, I'm going to cover the entire Old Testament. I'm 75% sure this is a good idea. (laughs) But if we're still here at two (laughs) and Mark needs to come up and chase me off, then I was 25% right that this was a bad idea. (laughs) But this is going to be different. Everybody say, this is going to be different. I don't normally do this. We normally pick one little place and we stay there, right? Verse by verse. Uh, This morning we've got all the verses. We're going to project them for you. um, And we're going to cover a lot of ground. But I trust that God's going to show you the story he's been writing, your place in it, and how he's got all of history wired to end in his greatest promised place of perfection. Let's pray and then we'll go back to the Garden of Eden. Father in heaven, you are an Almighty, matchless, loving, and sovereign God. We worry that this world is senseless. We worry that it's pointless, that there's no hope of it getting better. Uh, We fear that this is all there is. But thank you that your word shows us that you've had a plan that's unfolding. And we just ask that you would show us clearly how that plan all comes together. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you will need your Bibles. Uh, I mean, you will need your uh, bulletin. uh, So make sure your bulletin is ready. Uh, All the Bible verses will be projected. So bulletin, pen, and then there's an arrow in your bulletin. Did you see that? There's like a chart. Go ahead and pull that out. You need that too. Uh, This is the chronology of all the people we covered, or most of them. We'll put that up on the screen here. And in the circles are the dates. So we start with Adam and Eve and go all the way to Nehemiah. And the dates are just rough, uh, rough dates. They're not exact. But this is just to show you how our study uh, has taken us through history. Uh, The first thing you can write down in your bulletin is this. My world was created good, but lies in ruins. Write that down. My world was created good, but lies in ruins. When we went back to the Garden of Eden, we read about how God, and we believe in six literal days, made the universe, made the heavens, made the earth, uh, made the garden, made it good. It was good. It was good. It was perfect. No sin, no death, no suffering, nothing. But there was a rebellion in in the spiritual realm and Satan uh, fell and and that rebellion spilled over into our planet and he tempted Eve and she ate of the fruit and sinned and it plunged our world into sin and darkness. 
then sin snuck death into the world, and therefore what you're living in is a ruined world. Ruined. Uh, If you don't understand this first basic fundamental event in humanity's history, you're not going to get this world. Because as you look around, you're living in a ruined world. And that's why there's sin allowed. And that's why there's pain. And that's why there's suffering. And that's why there's cemeteries. And that's why there's cancer. And that's why there's hardship. Because the world is ruined. And you have every right to long for a perfect, sinless without suffering, a world filled with joy. You were built for that. But this world is ruined. And you have to know that while God permits the evil and the hardship you see, he's grieved by it. And best of all, he's planning to fix it. Uh, My world was created good but lies in ruins. Here's a picture. Uh, This is St. Andrew's Cathedral. I just um, was struck by that picture because it's, it's... a building that was probably at one point beautiful, uh, glorious to walk through. Um, I can imagine seeing the stained glass windows and I can imagine seeing what it looked like. In it. But, but it's, it's a ruin now. It's just ruined. Uh, and there's a cemetery now all around it. Death. And here's the next picture of it. It just makes me wonder what could have been. Uh, it makes me wonder what was there. And when you look around this world and watch the news and read the paper, you wonder the same thing. What was this supposed to be? We're supposed to be bothered by it because it's been ruined. And as we ask, why is this world so evil and wicked, then we start wondering, is there any hope that it'll ever be anything else? And in the garden, we're thankful that God made an announcement. Genesis 3.15 says this, God announced to the serpent... And to Eve, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. The serpent represents Satan. We know that throughout the scripture he's referred to as the ancient serpent. A spiritual being plunged the world into sin willingly and God announced that the war is not over. Satan didn't just win. He doesn't just get to go home and say, I did it, I ruined it, I win. God said, oh no, there's going to be enmity, strife, ongoing hostility between the people who follow you and the people who follow me. In other words, it's a war. The battle's not over. And it even hints that there would be one offspring of Eve who would land a decisive blow to the head of the serpent, to which I wonder if Satan was thinking, how would a human harm me in any way? And then the Son of God stepped down into humanity, and God became man, and then Satan understood he's going to be crushed. And at the cross, this enmity, this strife, this war came to its climax, and Jesus dealt a headshot to the enemy, defeated Satan, took all of his power, And God promised it way back in the Garden of Eden. So, my world was created good, but lies in ruins. And jot this down. Jesus is the descendant of Eve who crushed the serpent. Jesus is the descendant of Eve who crushed the serpent. From the beginning, we understand that God decreed that there would be a victory. A battle and a victory. And Jesus was the one who brought this victory. Well, as we continued through Genesis, we heard about Cain and Abel. First two brothers on the planet who couldn't get along too well. 
Uh, but what they taught us is, as we come into God's presence with our offerings, that there are some who God receives and there are some who God rejects. And we learned that it was the faith of Abel that made him acceptable in God's presence and it was the sin and hypocrisy of, of Cain who made it, that made him unacceptable in God's sight. So we can't hide our sin from God, but God will accept us if filled with faith and gratitude we come into his presence. But he'll reject us if our hearts are full of deception, envy, anger, and blatant disregard for God. He will not accept us in his presence. It's a very hard truth to face, but it is the reality. Then we read about Enoch. Enoch was special because he didn't die. One day, God just took him up to heaven and he was no more. The Bible says that before he was taken up, he was a herald of righteousness, a prophet, and he preached to the world. He basically gave the world a 670-year warning that the flood was coming. Hey, big flood's coming. Water's going to fall from the sky and kill everyone. You better get ready. We believe the Bible teaches it hadn't quite rained at that point yet, so everyone was like, he's kooky. And then this guy Noah started building this giant barge in his backyard in the desert. <laughs> and everyone's like, hey, look at that crazy guy building the giant. Why are you building the boat? Why are you building the... Well, all this water is going to fall from the sky and fill the world. And I'm going to get on the boat with all these animals and I'm going to be saved. You're going to get on a boat filled with meat-eating animals and you're going to be saved? <laughs> Good luck. So we learned about faith from Adam and Eve. We learned about faith from Cain and Abel, from Enoch, and then from Noah who made it glaringly obviously that he believed that the wrath of the Lord was coming. And after God flooded the earth with a broken heart and showed that when he says judgment is coming, he means it, then he made a covenant with, with Noah. And he said this, Never again will I do this. I'm going to put this rainbow in the sky and I'm going to remember that I made a covenant with you. I'm postponing my judgment. The world was filled with my wrath once. I'm going to postpone that, but not forever. The reason why we haven't experienced a great humanity-wide crippling outpouring of the wrath of God is because one man of faith pleased God and God made a covenant with him. But it was only a covenant of delay. It was like, I promise to wait to wipe humanity out. And it's like, okay, so we're just waiting around? Is that it? We're, we just are going to wait for God's judgment to come in the future? No. Number two, we got to a guy named Abraham. Number two, my hope of blessing came through one man of faith. My world was created good but lies in ruins. My hope of blessing came through one man of faith. Abraham was 75 years old and God told him, what? You're going to have a, you're going to have a kid. But I'm 75. Right. And then God made him wait 25 years before he gave him the promised child. He was 100. He was like 99 when God showed up and said, one more year, paint the nursery, go to Babies R Us, buy the diapers, assemble the crib. Good luck. <laughs> You're going to have a baby. And this was a miraculous child. And God said special things would happen through this child. It would be through Isaac that I will bring these, uh, these people, this nation, into the world. And then it will be through this nation that I bring the promised child of Eve. 
This is found in Genesis 22, 17 to 18. We'll put it up on the screen. God said to Abraham, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall, listen, all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Noah saw a world filled with wrath. God promised to Abraham a world filled with blessing. God's not just postponing his judgment. He's sending a blessing. But how? Well, it would come through one of Abraham's descendants. What would this blessing be? It would ultimately be salvation. The opportunity to be saved and born again and to be with God forever it would come through one of Abraham's descendants. And God portrayed how exactly this would happen. When after Abraham had this special son who he loved, remember what God asked him to do? Go to a mountain when I will show you and, and bring a knife and bring fire and I want you to, you know what? I want you to sacrifice that son of yours to me. And here's a picture of Abraham going up Mount Moriah with his son who he loved and, and he was going to bind him and he was going to slit his throat because God asked him to. To which we're like, what? Why would God even ask this of a person? And then at the last minute, God said, no, 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 stop, stop, stop. And then he said, I will provide the lamb. And when you understand that they were at least in the region, if not the spot where Jesus would die, a father offering his son, now you start to get it. A father offering his son as a sacrifice and God saying, stop, I will provide the lamb. This is 2,000 years, more than 2,000 years before Christ and God's pre-enacting he, he would give his son in this spot as a sacrifice for the world. And all this is going on in the Old Testament long before people even knew what would happen. Um, my hope of blessing came through one man of faith. A promised descendant of Abraham would somehow bring a blessing to the world. God got Abraham to act out this father sacrificing his son to show that it would be this is the way the blessing would come into the world. So write this down. Jesus is the descendant of Abraham who brings salvation to the world. Jesus is the descendant of Abraham, the Lamb of God, who brings salvation to the world. And let's show that arrow again. The arrow again. Uh, so we've got Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, and Noah. We're not exactly sure when those events happen. But Abraham's about 2100 B.C. And then we move on to Jacob and Joseph. So it's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then Joseph is one of his kids. And the promise that God made that this blessing would come into the world, it didn't look like it was going to happen because the Abraham, well, Jacob's kids couldn't get along too well. It looked like they were just going to take each other out and there'd be no more blessing, right? Um, so we heard about Jacob. We heard about Jacob and Esau and how they couldn't get along and Jacob ran away. And he was a, he was a crook. He was a, a shyster. He was a, a con artist. And God wrestled Jacob's sin to the surface and then taught him to walk by faith. The reconciliation there allowed the promise to continue forward. Esau could have just killed Jacob. And then we learned about Joseph. 
You think Cinderella had it hard with two wicked stepsisters. Joseph had ten wicked stepbrothers, and they all hated him. It didn't help that his father had picked a favorite, and Joseph was the favorite. It didn't help that his father dressed him up like a rainbow in this coat of many colors and said, guess which one's my favorite? All the kids hated him. So remember, they threw him in a well, sold him into slavery, and then went home and told Dad that he got killed. They lied to him. But what did God do? And here's what I want you to see. These are not just random, unrelated, great stories to tell our kids. What's with Joseph getting sold into Egypt? Well, God was going to lead his people into Egypt. There he was going to start this nation. Then he was going to lead them out into the promised land and then ultimately bring Christ into the world. It's all connected. Not to mention a famine was coming on the planet and, if, and Joseph got into Egypt and overnight God made him the second in charge of the whole known world. And then God was able to save these descendants from starvation. It's all connected. So my world was created good but lies in ruins. My hope of blessing came through one man of faith, Abraham. But now we see a portrayal as Joseph goes into Egypt of the human problem. And God wants to use this people of Israel to teach the world a lesson. Uh, Write this down, number three. My deliverance from sin and death comes from God. My deliverance from sin and death comes from God. God raised up Moses to lead a nation of slaves out into freedom. Why would God even let his new nation that he was making go into slavery to teach you about you? You see, the Bible says your spiritual condition is one of bondage to slavery. Looking at Israel, we learn about the human problem, which is we are in slavery to sin and we can't get free. We need a deliverer to come. We need God to set us free from bondage to sin. And so all of this was portrayed as God poured out his judgment on Egypt and let his people go free through the Red Sea. We have a picture here. Here's Moses in the Red Sea or at least from the prince of Egypt, which is my favorite. There he is. And what you're looking at is what God must do for you. You're a slave to sin. You're a prisoner in bondage. You have no hope of release unless a deliverer comes and walks you safely through. Even as the Pharaoh came with his chariots, it's like death is stalking them and death is stalking you and how can you get free from sin and death? And there's only one way. It's by a deliverer like Moses. And Moses was meant to foreshadow Christ. In Deuteronomy 18, 15, Moses said that God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Who's a prophet like me? A prophet named Jesus who can transfer us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Jesus, who can deliver us out of the kingdom of of sin and death. And so Moses was supposed to get us ready for Christ to come. The Bible also makes the radical claim that Christ, who existed before Christmas, right, was the one walking them out of Egypt. 1 Corinthians 10.4, we'll put it on the screen, says this, And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Wow. So write this down. Jesus is the prophet like Moses who delivers us from slavery to sin. My world was created good but lies in ruins, and my hope of blessing came through one man of faith, Abraham. And my deliverance from sin and death comes from God through a prophet like Moses who is Jesus, 
And then as we read on, we learned that while the Israelites were set free, they weren't too happy about it. And they started wishing they could go back to Egypt. We just want to go back to Egypt. They had better food there. They had more water there. Life was better there. We want to go back to Egypt. So God judged them and said, that's it. 40 years you're staying in the wilderness. And all you old folks who are grumbling, you're not even getting in. Your kids are going to go in. So after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, then God led them into the land of promise. And who was who the leader who led them in? What was his name? Joshua. Joshua. And Joshua showed that whatever stands in the way of God's promises being fulfilled, Jericho, God can demolish with the blast of a trumpet. Doesn't matter how high the walls are, how thick the gates are, the bar, doesn't matter. One, one army of faith, one blast of the trumpet, and God just pushes it right out of the way. So once they got into the promised land, then there was this form of government known as the judges early on. So let's put the arrow back up there. So there was Adam and Eve, promise that there would be somebody who crushes the serpent, Cain and Abel, Noah and the flood, and the promise that God would withhold his judgment. God made a covenant to Abraham, and when I say covenant, I mean a binding promise that through one descendant of Abraham, a blessing would come to the entire world. And then Jacob, uh, and then it went on to Joseph, who went into Egypt, and then Moses, so now we're at about 1500 B.C., led the people out. Joshua, about 1400 B.C., led the people into the promised land, fulfilling what God promised to Abraham. And then there's the period of the judges, from 1300 to about 1000 B.C., we talked about several judges. They included Gideon, he's the fleece guy, and then Samson, uh, and then Jephthah, and then Barak. We talked about all of that and how God again and again and again delivered his people when they cried out to him. But then the people started crying out for a king. We want a king. We want a king. And God's like, all right, you already have a king and his name is me, but I'll give you a king. First he gave him King Saul, who was a bad king, to teach him a lesson. Then he gave him a great king. Who is that king's name? David, a man after my own heart. And David is meant to get us ready for Christ. So write this down, number four. My world needs an eternal righteous king to rule forever. This is what David's supposed to show us. My world needs an eternal righteous king to rule forever. God made a covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 to 13. We'll put those on the screen. says this. When your days are fulfilled, David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. What's that word there? Say that again. What's that word there? That's a good word. That's a good word. Is this all we have to look forward to, Lord? An evil world, broken, filled with sinful people. We can't stop it. We can't control it. Is this just the way it's going to go on forever? Is there any way you're going to fix it? And then to David, he says, I'm going to raise up one of your descendants and I'm going to put him on the throne. And he's never going to get off the throne. He's going to rule Forever, he is going to be an eternal, righteous, holy, awesome king. And whatever powers of darkness now get to mess with our world will forever be.
be crushed forever. What hope? But then God made him wait. And he gave a little hint that there would be this king who would come. And they'd be, now is he coming now? No, no, no. Is he coming now? No. And what's he going to be like? Where's he going to come from? And they didn't know. He told them this king would come, but he didn't tell them much about this king. These were messianic promises. He was showing them, though, that my world, he's showing us, my world needs an eternal, righteous king to rule forever. And here's a picture of a throne room. Okay, you get bonus points if you could tell me where this throne room is from. But where in Lord of the Rings? Minas Tirith. Good. King of Zingondor. You'll notice there's two seats there. Now at the bottom there, that's the steward's throne. And Denethor sat on that one. But there's a, there's a throne that's reserved for the king. But Gondor didn't have a king. They were waiting for the return of the king. Tolkien knew his Bible, right? And so here, this is supposed to symbolize... A world that is waiting for the return of the king. And God had made a promise there will be a king who rules forever. But he's not here yet, but he's coming. And this throne room represents what Israel was waiting for. King is coming. A king is coming. A king is coming. And then in Luke 1, 32, an angel announced, He will be great. And he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Born king. You can write this down. Jesus is the king like David who will reign forever in glory. And the promise God made with David gives you assurance for an eternity under the righteous rule of a good, holy, godly king. What hope do you have that a thousand years into eternity, God doesn't say, all right, I am fed up. You guys get out. This has been fun, but you're all getting on my nerves, so just vaporize. Uh, The hope you have is that God made a binding promise to a man named David that there would be a king on the throne forever, and you would enjoy being under his rule. And when God sent his son into the world to become this king, God fused somehow his nature with flesh so that Jesus now bears the marks on his body and his fate is now wrapped up in your fate. That's the hope that we have, that we can enjoy God forever in a kingdom that is not even touched by sin, that Jesus came and he now reigns with all authority in heaven and on earth. Well, Jesus is the king like David who will reign forever in glory. Many, many things in David's life foreshadow Jesus. The fact that it took him so long to get to the throne. He was just a wanderer living in caves and on the run and being persecuted. This is the kind of path that Jesus is taking to the throne. Uh, He was harassed and chased and ultimately crucified. But David did get to the throne and Jesus also got to the throne. But his kingdom is now in heaven. It hasn't quite come fully on earth yet. We're longing for that day. After David, we read about several of the prophets. There were prophets, there were priests, and there were kings. The prophets are God's covenant enforcers. Uh, The prophets, like Elijah, would show up to the kings and and show them, you're you're blowing it, you're messing it up, God's judgment's going to come. And Elijah showed us that God can, as we walk by faith, God can sustain us. 
We're like Elijah. We're strangers and aliens and exiles in this world. We're persecuted. We're mistreated. But God can see us through. He fed Elijah using birds. And God can meet all of our needs. But God's people broke the covenant. They broke his heart. And they, want, they then uh, ushered in God's wrath and mercy. Elijah also showed us that God can even raise the dead. It was in Elijah's day that the, for the first time, a, a dead heart began to beat again, giving you hope that after your body is gone and you're in the grave, that there's life beyond. That happened in Elijah's day. Then we talked about Jeremiah, and we learned that there was an evil king who, as Jeremiah was writing the Old Testament, and this evil king sliced it up and threw it in the fire. And God said, write it again. And this just shows how the people of God are going to be persecuted and the word of God is going to be uh, burned and disregarded. Then we entered into a period known as the exile. God promised Moses that if the people broke the covenant he made with Moses, he would send them out of the promised land for a period to cure their idolatry and to cure their rebellion. Now we learn something about God. Why would he do that? He worked so hard to bring his people out of Egypt Worked so hard to settle him in there. Now why would he rip them out and throw them into some foreign land? Well, to teach us. To teach us that our sin separates us from God. To teach us that our sin brings God's judgment. But even better than that, he wants to teach us that he can rebuild what sin destroys. See, he wants to show us that when sin ruins us, when sin ruins our world, he has the power to rebuild it. So that's the fifth thing you can write down. We learn this through Nehemiah. My God can rebuild what my sin has destroyed. Has your sin destroyed things in your life? Has your sin destroyed your family or your children or your marriage? Or has, has it ravaged your soul? What, what has your sin destroyed in your life? I have a picture here of a building in China that collapsed. It just The whole thing just fell over. Thankfully, nobody was in there. They were still trying to put it up. The whole thing just fell over. And then there's a picture of some workers who are meeting to try and talk. How are we going to get this thing back up there? Man, that's a big one. Did we have cranes that big that we can just lift the whole thing back up and rebuild it? Um, And that symbolizes your life. And God says, yes. Yes, I can rebuild what your sin has destroyed. And as Jerusalem lied in ruins because the Assyrians came and then the Babylonians came and burnt it down and threw it down, God shows his power to rebuild your broken life. And he gives you hope. We learned from the book of Daniel that God can preserve his people when they're exiled in foreign lands. Uh, Through the lion's den and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace, God is able to sustain us. And in the... Uh, story of Esther, we learned how Haman wanted to kill all the Jews on the planet. And he had the power to do it. That's a problem because no, no Jews and guess what? Christ couldn't come into the world if all of the Israelites were wiped out. And then in Nehemiah's day, we learned that Nehemiah came back to a desolate city that was barely trying to get back. Uh, and, and how can a Savior come to a city that's not even functioning? To a temple that's not even working right? And God gives us faith to be sustained and defended as he's rebuilding us and forgiving us and restoring us and disciplining us. And this idea of a God who restores a ruined world was getting the world ready for Christ to come. You can write this down. Jesus is the promised Messiah who rebuilds a ruined world. Jesus is the promised Messiah 
who rebuilds a ruined world. Uh, quoting Amos 9.11 is Acts 15.16. We'll put it on the screen. It says this, After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Jesus is the promised Messiah who rebuilds a ruined world. Are you seeing now how all of history leading up to the coming of Christ was not this wild sea of chaos, this random, blind uh, outworking of chance? It, it was God's story unfolding, and every verse in the Old Testament was getting the world ready for Christ to come. God has a plan, and his plan is for you and for me, and you're, you're waking up in this day and age living in a part of his story. The Old Testament got the world ready for Christ to come, and it says in Hebrews 1, 1 to 4, as a summary, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom uh, also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Do you understand that it's all about Jesus? Do you understand that the very climax of all of humanity is God the Son who created it all, the designer, the owner, the operator of your universe stepped into your universe to make a purification for your greatest problem. And he lived the perfect life. He fulfilled the prophecies that were made about him. He died on the cross. He bore all of the sins of the world on his shoulders. And then he was thrown into a tomb. And then on the third day, he rose again. And then after staying, staying around for 40 days, and then he went up in the sight of all, and he ascended, and now he is seated at the right hand of God Most High, and he has all authority in heaven and on earth. And the Bible says that he alone can give you the gift of eternal life. This is the story. You're living in the middle of this story. The story stars Jesus, and he's the hero that you need to be saved. If you don't get that, if you don't get Jesus right, you won't understand anything in your world. It won't make sense. And your life is not meaningless. It's not futile. It's not unexplainable. God has a plan. You're living in the middle of it. And if you want to know the point of it all, you have to get Jesus right. The God who made you and loves you wants you to see that all that he's been doing is leading up to Christ and what he did. And that if you have Christ, you have eternal life. If you don't have Christ, all you have waiting for you in eternity is hell forever. Either Jesus will bear the punishment for your sin or you will pay for it for eternity. God loves you so much, he took it upon himself. The last picture I want to show you is this. This is the picture of a, an empty tomb looking up at an empty cross. This is the most important realization you can ever have about this world. That there was a promised Savior 
talked about in the garden, talked about to Abraham, symbolized through Moses, symbolized through David, talked about in the prophets that there would be a king who would come and that he would bring a blessing to the world. And have you been to the empty cross? Have you been to the cross that's stained in blood where your sins were paid for? Because if you haven't been to the cross, you will pay for your sins forever. And that's not a pleasant truth, but God already filled the world with water once to show you that judgment is coming. And have you been to the empty tomb? Have you been to the tomb where the dead, lifeless body of the Son of God stood up and in triumph walked out? Have you been there to the only person who fully and finally conquered the grave and therefore can give you hope of resurrection to life after death? Have you been to the tomb to receive eternal life? Maybe God brought you here this morning because he wants you to know you can be in heaven with him forever. Your life can serve a greater purpose than just existing from birth to death. You can live with understanding that he has a plan that's been unfolding and you can find your place in it. But you have to be saved by the grace of God. I want to give you the opportunity right now, based on all that we've heard over the past year about faith, I want to give you the opportunity to understand, wow, it's true. God prepared the whole world for Christ to come because I need a savior. I need a deliverer. I need a, I need a king to rule forever. This world needs a king. And maybe today's the day when you find him. Let's all bow our heads and let's all close our eyes. And let me just give you a chance to pray to the God who made you and loves you. Father, we thank you that you made a, a good world filled with such promise, a good world filled with beauty, filled with so much enjoyment and fun and loving relationships and family and every good and perfect gift comes from you, but it's ruined. Lord, it's ruined. And we feel the effects of sin. We fear death. Lord, we feel pain and we, we want more than this. Praise you, Lord, that we can understand what you've been doing. You've not been sitting idly. You've not been doing nothing. You've been hard at work making promises and keeping them. We understand that Christ came just as you promised. And we believe by faith that he will return, that the trumpet will sound, that the dead will be raised, and we will be with you forever in heaven. We believe that. But Lord, there are some in this room who are living without hope. And if nothing changes, they will be apart from you for eternity. But some are ready. Some understand their need. Some are prepared, Lord, to understand what Jesus did for them. And to those who are hearing your call, I just want to pray with them right now. They, as they pray this, Father, I admit that I have sinned and fallen short. I admit that I have broken your law and your heart. I admit that I am guilty and deserve to go to hell. But I believe you sent your son as promised. I believe he paid my debt. I believe he died my death. I believe he rose again. And I believe... He sits on high, enthroned. 
Lord Jesus, become my king. Forgive me for my sins. See me safely into heaven. Lord, to those who are praying to receive Christ, may you reassure them that your word says, never will you leave them, never will you forsake them. My prayer is that we would live with hope, serving an eternal purpose here as we fulfill your great commission and win others. Your patience is great, but it will run out. It will run out soon. I pray that you would give us zeal to do the work while we still can. We give you all the glory for your great salvation that we see in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.